what your ACORP can do for your requirements. Welcome to episode 43. Hey, what's up, everybody? I'm your host, Bjarne Lure, and this is the Mastering Embedded Systems podcast. You get know-how, tools, processes, and surplus information in this podcast. Or in a nutshell, I give you my best for your success in embedded systems projects. After the last episodes about requirements engineering, you might have thought, what about the real thing? How will such a tool for requirements engineering look like? What's in for me, and how can I lay my hand on it? No worries, man. Right after episode 38, I got a message by Trevor Bradley from Curay Corp. We are located in Halifax at beautiful Nova Scotia in Canada. Trevor wrote, I really enjoyed your last podcast about requirements. The episode was very relevant as I am with a research group in Canada creating tools for requirements engineering. We just released our first beta tool called QV Scribe. We think requirements are definitely one of those unspoken or at least underrated vulnerabilities for today's engineers. And so we really want to create something that's on the right path for solving some of these vulnerabilities. You think that's interesting? So did I. I had lasted some time until we could arrange a call, but today I have the pleasure to welcome the CEO of Secure Corp, Jordan Kuriakidis, and the marketing director Trevor Bradley. Moreover, there is again Joachim Reinke with us. By the way, it's the first time we are having an interview with three guests, each located at a different site. You should listen to this episode if you are considering to use a tool for requirements engineering, or if you are already in the selection or testing phase for a new tool, or you are part of this big group managing their requirements with Microsoft Word and you wanted to improve your working process. This episode supports a dedicated look into a distinct tool for requirements engineering. You receive insights how this tool was planned and what are the details behind of it. But you also get worthwhile ideas and thoughts about requirements in general. And in particular, there is the new angle QA Corp uses natural language processing to actually analyze what makes a requirement unambiguous and high quality. And last not least, QA Corp offers their tool for free during the beta phase. If you're interested to test a tool for requirements engineering, you want to dive deeper into tool support or you're simply curious what this is all about, do not hesitate and visit QA Corp's website and get your free account. All links and further details are available as always in the show notes on embeddedsuccess.com slash episode 43. But now let's jump right into it. Stay tuned and be inspired. I wanted to welcome Trevor Bradley and Jordan Kuriakidis from Cure Corp Corporation. Trevor and Jordan, you are providing tools for requirements engineering. Could you give us a short, a brief overview of what you are doing? Uh, sure, I'd be happy to, and, and thanks for having us on. Um, we are providing a, a, a tool, as you mentioned, for requirements engineering. And the purpose of the tool is to help engineers who are either writing requirements or suffering through requirements, a tool to help them um, analyze their requirements. Uh, there are many tools out there that exist now that do requirements management, help you manage a process or provide traceability between various levels of requirements. But we found there was a, a gap in tools that provide actual analysis to tell you if you're 
if your actual requirement is well written or poorly written and where the gaps are. I think that's already the starting point to say something about what were the reasons you started to develop a re requirements engineering tool. Is it already co already covered by this answer or is there something more? Well, no, there is a bit of a, a, a background, perhaps a bit of a of, uh, history on how we actually got to this place. We first started not thinking in terms of requirements, but we built our first tool, QV Trace, was to help analyze designs. We noticed that more and more companies in aerospace and certainly in automotive, uh, other industries as well, uh, companies that build embedded systems are more and more often moving to a model-based development uh, environment. And so we wanted to provide a tool to help them analyze their designs. So you input your, your design in a tool like Simulink or, or SCADE is another common, Modelica is another one. You enter your design and then what you can do is ask questions of the design and the tool can give you a response and based on the answers you get back from the tool you can ask further questions and thereby understand more about your design and our idea was to try to find errors in the design stage when you're actually in the design stage a lot of our customers find that a lot of the more expensive a lot of the most expensive errors are tools that are are sorry, are errors that are injected into the system in the design stage, but you actually find them in the prototype stage or in the testing phase. And so we thought, well, let's try to find the, the errors as early as possible. And so we built QB Trace to do that. Now, uh, fast forward uh, about a year or so, and what we found that most of the errors that we find are actually not errors in the design, but actually errors in the requirements. So we try to find the error as early as possible, but even at the design stage, you've already committed some errors and that's errors in the requirement. So that's when we said, let's go even earlier when you're actually writing the requirements for your system before you even design anything and try to find errors there as well. I guess that was a bit of a long answer to your, <laughs> to your question. <laughs> no, that, that's pretty much fine, especially as you are already highlighting one of the major pain points. I'm personally struggling with a lot of projects uh, that there are. it's detected that either the requirements or the later upcoming specifications are somehow wrong. And so the whole mm -hmm. group is marching in towards a different or at least wrong direction. And finally, you detect it at the very end of the story. And then you say, oh, my God, how could it happen that we are ending up in this situation? And it looks like this pretty much... Ex uh, matches exactly this kind of pain point. Is it like that? Yes, that's exactly right. That that's our goal is to solve those is to solve those problems. And I think the reason why, as you had this nice nice uh, image of everybody marching in the wrong direction, but they don't know they're in the wrong direction until they walk out of the forest and they see they're miles away from where they want it to be. Uh, and the reason why those errors are so hard to fix is. You know, it's intuitively obvious that the longer an error stays in your system, the more difficult it is to fix because there's all these layers built upon, on top and on top of it. And so you have to peel back all these layers and that's very expensive and very time consuming. Where do you see then the major pain points in requirements engineering besides of the one you already highlighted? So I think the ones that um, the highlighted is the major problem in requirements engineering. Um, other problems in requirements engineering, I would say, are not so much technical problems, but they have to do with uh, issues of communication. 
um, issues of elicitation, um, you know, have all the stakeholders actually um, contributed to this document. Um, and, and then also, I think a lot of it is, you know, if you think of requirements engineering, I think it's a very good term because to do it properly, it is an engineering discipline. Um, however, the term requirements engineering, I'm not sure how, how old the term is. I suspect it's not very old. Um, and people haven't started thinking of engineering beginning at the requirement stage. You know, most people think of engineering begins when, when you start building something. Uh, but really, engineering is much start, begins much earlier earlier than that. A little bit astonishing for me was the name of the company, or at least of the tools. Is there something behind of QE or QRA? So my training is actually not as an engineer. My training is a theoretical physics physicist. And for many years, I was a professor here at the university in quantum computing and, and quantum theory in general. So I fell into this field by accident. So QRA really stands for quantum research analytics. Um, but since the company has evolved, we don't, well, we actually we still do a little bit of quantum computing, but very little. Now we're mostly focused on design and requirements engineering. Um, so in my research group, I study complex systems, but complex physical systems. And we had a contract by a aerospace firm to do some research uh, on complex systems. And as I was, and so, they, you know, you may have heard of quantum computing, and that's sort of a big field in physics now that's getting bigger and bigger all the time. Occasionally, there's a newspaper article about it. Um, so they wanted to figure out what is quantum computing and is something going to uh, come out, is something that they have to pay attention to. We started working and uh, on this project with them. And as I started learning more, more and more about the types of systems that they build, the kinds of problems that they had, and really the astonishing complexity of some of these large, large um, embedded systems that people build, you know, the whole cyber physical systems. I had this idea that some of the techniques we use to analyze physical systems in physics could be applied to analyze these synthetic and engineered systems because they exhibit a lot of the behavior of natural systems. And we made some progress with that. And once we started making progress, as we started moving more and more into engineering and building tools, that's when we spun out the company and, uh, and that's where we find ourselves today. Um, so we don't do much quantum, but that is our history. Yeah, I bet you weren't expecting that, huh? <laughs> ah, no, no, not not really. But it's quite quite amazing. But I'm interested in: does it have given you some kind of assistance to go into that direction for requirements engineering? If you leave your origin of theoretical physics, no, it's definitely not a natural direction to go in. Uh, it was something that was you know, just following our nose and asking interesting questions and trying to solve interesting problems. And once you solve one problem, you get led to another, you get led to another question. And I started becoming more and more interested about uh, engineering itself and, and how they actually build these systems and how they can verify that these systems behave as they um, intend, intend for them to behave. And so the V stands for verification in all our tools. So QB trace Q, we have Q as as a, as a little nod towards our history, and the V stands for verification. And everything that we do now at QRA 
is you know answers the question how can we verify that these machines will do um, exactly what we expect them to do and also will not do the things that we do not expect them to do and right now this is primarily in aerospace uh, and defense but i think that these types of systems and these types of problems are going to become uh, shorter than most people realize, are going to become societal problems, right? Already you see problems in automotive that they're trying to make these systems not just automated, but more autonomous. Um, the complexity increases. And so we have to have new techniques to do this verification and this validation. And it really has to start right at the very beginning. And in most cases, that means in the requirements phase. I want to tend now a little bit the focus in the, the tool itself. Mm -hmm. What is QE tool? How can I imagine it if I'm really a rookie, if I'm a newcomer in that area and you wanted to introduce me into QE, what would you tell me? So we have two tools, QV Trace and QV Scribe. And QV Scribe is the tool that's all about um, requirements. And, you know, a good tool... Like mo uh, So we try to make QV Trace to be a good tool for engineers to use. Like most tools, it is something that can help you do your job. Now, when you're writing requirements, um, you know, the big question you should have is, you know, is this requirement a good requirement? Have I written it properly? Is it clear? Is it ambiguous? You know, can it be interpreted in different ways? Um, is each requirement actually required? requiring the user to actually do something. Um, and so there are all these, I would say, best practices that, you know, they're written down in books. There's NCOSI standards, um, the, and NASA has some very nice standards as well. Um, and we wanted to have a tool to help automate as much as possible, right? So it's not a black box. We don't try to tell you that, you know, if you just adopt your tools, all your problems will be solved. Um, that's not the case uh, at all. And you should never believe tools that do claim to do that. Um, it's a tool to, that helps you. So we think you should try to automate as much as can be automated, but not to go too far. Tools should work with the users. And so if you think of now what the QV scribe will do is um, the first version we have we have launched right now, which is in beta. You can go to our website, just download it for free, and and please do and send us your comments and criticisms and uh, opinions and requests. Um, we are doing. We released it for free in order to get feedback from the community. So what the tool does now is, the first version is a Word plugin, and we chose Word because. Uh, from our evidence that we've seen around us, about 60 to 70 percent of all requirements either begin their life in Microsoft Word or live there permanently. And so we built a tool that integrates with Microsoft Word. Um, so you're loading your requirements document. The tool that uses natural language processing can detect where in your document are the requirements. And there is some uh, interaction that the user can specify which are requirements, which aren't requirements. The tool can assist with that. And then when you're done, the what we call the parsing phase, you have your document and each individual requirement is marked in your document. And then you can analyze. Um, for each requirement, you can analyze the requirement and it'll give you what I call your Amazon five stars. It'll give you a rank from one to five. 
and tell you if your requirement is good or if your requirement is poor. And if it's poor, you should fix it. Okay, that was already a full load of details. Um, it was, yes. <laughs> let, let, let's, let's go step by step. So, um, first of all, you just mentioned that, uh, that you have provided it for free, or at least it's downloadable for free. You want to get some kind of experience, user experiences, and so on. I wanted to forward to the audience uh, in the show notes then uh, all these details so they can do and follow that. Is there any kind of liabilities inside? Do we, what do we have to take care for? There's nothing. It's just available. There's just available for free. You can just go to our website, download it, and it, it is a Word plugin. So you have to have uh, uh, Microsoft Word, and you uh, and you just install it, and that's it. Okay, good. Yeah, that, that's that's good already. Then second, you said that it's the first version. That implies there might be a second or a even a third version. Where in which direction do you want to go? When we were talking to customers. They asked us, um, so right now the tool is used in over 25 countries and people are asking us for features and requests. And right now we're gathering information to figure out, you know, which, uh, which features are the most important and the most useful for engineers. Um, right now the tool I would say does, you can, you can classify natural language processing into very two broad camps. So camp one is a syntactic analysis. It looks at words and sentence structure. And the other uh, kind of analysis is semantic analysis. And that looks at, you know, the meaning of what you're writing or what you're actually trying to say. Um, right now, the tool is in the first camp. Obviously, syntax is easier than semantics. And so it looks at just syntax, sentence structure, ambiguity, making sure you have words like should and must uh, and, um, uh, well, should is actually a poor word. Words right. like must is, is better, right? Mm -hmm. Um, it does th things of that nature. Absolutely. Um, the, the next stage would be to start looking at, um, a more semantic analysis and try to really understand, um, what the requirement is actually trying to say and trying to direct the user to, to, or the builder to actually build. Uh, that's a much more challenging, a much more challenging um, goal to have. But if you look at machine learning and natural language processing, say over the last, say uh, ten years, let's say, uh, there's been just such tremendous, tremendous advances made made in that field. Almost none of which are applied to technical documentation, which to me is very strange because you would expect that technical documentation would be very amenable to machine learning and natural language processing because, after all, the goal is clarity, precision, and to write a sentence that has only one meaning, that can be interpreted only in one way. It's highly technical. And so the next stage of the tool, from a functionality point of view, is to try to build in semantics. And so when you're talking about an electronic control unit, for example, the, the tool will know in the document how many different kinds of control units you have and can flag you to say, you know, you've written electronic control unit here, but I know this document has like seven different kinds of electronic control units. So which one do you mean? You know, tell me which one means so I could know. Um, that's from a functionality point, that would be the next stage. Um, 
then I would say more from a practical side is, you know, engineers are very busy. Um, they and they, but they love tools, but they're also very busy. And so you want to provide a tool that's easy to learn and doesn't teach, doesn't make them work any harder than they have to be. And so one of the goals we're adopting is not to make a standalone tool, but to provide a tool that integrates with tools that are familiar uh, with them already. That's why we integrated with Microsoft Word. We said, okay, everyone who writes requirements uses Microsoft Word. So let's build a tool right inside there so they understand what's going on right off the bat. Excel is the next stage. Then uh, bigger, better tools such as um, um, IBM Doors, right? And integrate with Doors. So build integration with all these tool sets to make it easier for the engineers, not to have a standalone project that doesn't play well with the, with the ecosystem. Joachim, you wanted to contribute something? Really, I, I love this idea. Um, and um, silently, I nodded to everything which uh, which um, we we heard up to now. Um, it is it is really it ha it has astonished me as well that uh, the area of technical writing, this is where requirements engineering lives in, has not been addressed by more. Well, let's say let's let's say more structured approaches um, to um, make uh, this um, the language in which uh, requirements usually are phrased made it, may, make uh, it better. And I like this approach and um, theoretically, from a theoretical scientific background, this approach is, has been addressed in, I think, I think if I'm not mistaken, in, in 1975 earlier by Bandler and Grinder. And 1994 again um, by Bandler, where they extracted with linguistic tools, where they extracted ways how requirements can be written in the wrong way, and um, they, as as you all know, linguist uh, linguistic methods are quite formal. It's it's not like uh, studying language or something. So what they came up with, they came up with hard criteria of um, where require when and under which conditions which machines could evaluate requirements are written poorly but um, as far as i know nothing has ever turned out of, of that so i really like this approach which um, which goes back to this theory and makes it happen and makes it live I, I think i'm going to try this and what i can sign as well is that 60 to 70 percent of requirements live their life within microsoft office that's totally true and i love the approach of uh, then not introducing the 1001st tool for handling requirements, but just going where everyone is and providing um, a better quality there. Mm -hmm. I like that. I really mm -hmm. like the idea. Yeah, good. Thanks. Uh, there's some, several comments to make on uh, on what you said, especially about the theoretical approach. So uh, I myself have an academic background uh, in theoretical physics. So I understand theoretical approaches very well. Um, and I also understand the academic mindset very well. Um, and, you know, taking this theoretical and academic approach has its, has its um, good points and its bad points. And actually, both the good and bad points are often the same point. Right? Um, and so 
we've looked at some of these other studies as well that, that you've mentioned, um, and also on the on the QB trace side, which analyzes design. That also has a very rigorous mathematically um, structured approach. Um, and our first attempt was to do this. We said, well, here, people have already studied this. There is a proper way to do it. Here's how you do it. And we thought we would just tell people, and they would say, oh, thank you very much. We'll do it that way now. Uh, it turns out we were, uh, by we, I mean me, uh, terribly, terribly wrong. People said, I don't know what you're talking about, and just get out of my office, I'm busy. Right? <laughs> and, and so it's so it's so you're quite right when you said, you know, it's a linguistic approach. It's not language right they it's it's a, it's a different language it's not natural language right it's a very formal structure it's it's, yes, it's closer yes, to mathematics course. right yeah and so of course i was i was taking for granted that we are talking about this realm of how do we phrase requirements where you um tie yourself into um quite narrow bounds of subsets of english uh, language uh, where well you all know requirements are usually written in uh, particular patterns in particular right. ways. And um, for this subset of natural language, um, these uh, linguistic approaches, um, which are the, the theoretical background of um, what your tool can do, uh, as, as you said, like determining um, you're using this and that noun, but it's ambiguous as you are using this in different ways throughout your document and uh, these things. They are, they are basically, they have been described then and, and I really like that they are now being well brought into, into life because mm -hmm. what has mm -hmm. been, uh, it was just a theory and now you're putting that to practice. I like that. So, um, yeah. Yeah. Totally with yeah. you here. Yeah, and that's that's what we um, um, that's what we also enjoy doing because there is some of this background the uh, of the core algorithms and and the core structure does exist as you said, uh, but people just haven't built tools around mm -hmm. them to make them exactly. usable. Right? Exactly. Yeah, that's what we're doing. We're having great fun. <laughs> great, because when I was when I was studying these uh, these linguistic approaches. Um, uh, I wondered by myself, well, um, I have never ever stumbled across a tool who uh, tries, even tries to make advantage out of them. And some of those, well, I've been, um, 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 I've been a software developer before. Uh, some of those seem to be quite low hanging fruits, but no one has ever gone for them. And now mm -hmm. I'm um, getting to know to a company which is, um, providing a tool which goes for actually goes for them i, I really like that yeah and i'm already yeah. figuring out in which word installations and where requirements are written i'm going to try to persuade persons to try this <laughs> very good yes please do and, <laughs> and as i said when we first built this tool we weren't sure we weren't sure how well it would be received if it would be useful so we decided to build as just as you said what are the lowest hanging possible fruits there are? Can we build a tool that's kind of very lightweight to use? It's easy yeah. to learn. It may not do very much, but what it does, it does it well and almost like a little utility. Put that out mm -hmm. there, just give it to people for free and mm -hmm. ask them. So, um, Georg, you asked earlier, you may not have said these right words, but you said, you know, what's the catch? If we're giving it for free, what do we, what mm -hmm. do we get out of it? Yes. Well, so what we get out of it is we want you to actually give us feedback and comments and criticisms and tell us what you think of it, what's good and what's bad. 
and then we can build a more substantial tool that, that becomes even more useful. Isn't there a quite, I want to say, a quite natural barrier inside of this approach? Currently, we have the realization on the syntax analysis. Semantic analysis is something in the future. But even on the syntax analysis, I'm a foreigner to the English language. It's not my first language. And therefore, there might be simply some kind of errors inside which are natural for a German speaker, but not natural for someone else. Today, I was in discussion with, with Russian guys, with Chinese guys, with Finnish guys, and with also some Polish guys. And everybody has his particular faults Is it even possible to cope with this kind of, let's say, sub-patterns of this language analysis if it's provided by some non-native speaker? Um, so we have not found this to be a very big problem. And I suspect as we go at higher level, as we go from, say, requirements to, say, design documents and maybe even to RFPs and proposals, that will become more of an issue. Um, right now... Right now, you're still describing technical concepts. And so the pattern of the language for um, especially low-level technical requirements is pretty straightforward and pretty standard. Um, and so, you know, if you look at German and uh, English, sometimes the object and the subjects are in reverse order. Um, German is very famous for being a very non-local language. You have to wait until the very last word to figure out right. how it all fits together, <laughs> yes. right? It's, it's, uh, it's very complicated. Uh, but, um, but usually you wouldn't write requirements that way, right? You wouldn't write, you know, writing requirements and writing prose are two different, two different things. Right? And generally what makes an interesting piece of prose is not what makes a very good requirement because you're looking for clarity. And so... No, we haven't found that to be that big of a problem um, so far. It was Hakim, you wanted to add something to it as well. Yeah, um, I think this question of uh, circumnavigating um, these different um, different skills of um, writing requirements in English language for non-native English speakers is already being addressed. Pre, in a pre-tool phase because it is highly recommended by all, all those bodies who have to do with requirements engineering. It is highly recommended that you, when you're writing a requirement, you follow a very narrow, very particular, very specific template for a sentence or two or three in, in current in the IREP. Um, they they favor three different um, templates for sentences depending on what you want to express but you should always stick to one of those three sentence templates and if you do that and uh, those templates are quite simple there is no subclasses involved and so on no gerund constructions no participle constructions allowed just one auxiliary verb, which is usually must. And if you do not use must, uh, you are warned anyway. If you are doing that, then English written language boils down to a, a pretty small fraction of what's possible with it. You would never ever be able to express something like Shakespeare did with his poem, but you explicitly don't want that. Mm -hmm. So um, this, uh, if you are, have some uh, pre-knowledge to requirements phrasing, this problem becomes smaller because at that point you already know 
that you are bound to um, a subset of the English language when you write it. And uh, if you are bound to that, then this um, foreign uh, language um, speaker issues become really, really small. Yes, I, I, I would agree with I would agree with all of that. In fact, if we were to jump, say, uh, a few years into the future, there are some efforts around the world that are, um, it's called constrained natural language. I'm not sure if you guys have heard of this before. Mm -hmm. it, was yeah. it was developed, so there's a big effort at the University of Zurich. Um, the effort was originated to help non-native English speakers, or not even native, but newcomers to the language, to learn uh, quickly and to make a small amount of errors. And um, it strike, and then it moved to being something that can be automatically processed, right? Like the, the language itself, if you structure it in a very simple way, it can be converted to code easily that you can, you can do all this processing with it. Um, it works very well. I would say right now the problem with constrained natural language and these automatic tools have got nothing to do with requirements. Um, it makes the, the language very um, not very natural, right? Make, makes it very awkward to, to say things. Uh, but I do think that would be the future of, re of requirements as well. There's something that's very um, appropriate for technical documentation to have this constrained language. Well, when you're reading um, requirements, documents, which stick to these uh, templates, they are already quite awkward to read. They, everything starts with the same three words. And uh, yeah, um, so this, uh, this shouldn't, I think this makes sense. And maybe I'd like to drop in an interesting aspect, which we might or might not follow along is, isn't this um, the beginning of, um, providing um, domain-specific language on words which happen to share, have to be shared words with English language? Yes. And how far is this already um, definition phase of a non-graphical domain-specific language which happens to share parts, a very high subset of English syntax and English semantics and English vocabulary? It's going through that direction for me. I, I agree with that uh, completely, and I think um, um, I think that the way the field will eventually evolve once people start, I think, considering requirements writing and requirements processing as an engineering discipline in its own right. I think we're going to see more and more of this. In fact, what I can imagine happening is if you have a well-formed requirements document you should be able to build an object model from that document itself and to figure out how all the various pieces, all the various pieces of the machine you're building fit together in this document. Um, yep. And that is, you know, that also alludes to what I was talking earlier about the, the semantic side is once you start having these and start building up these domain specific language, you start building up a hierarchy of concepts and attributes for the different objects in your document. And, and that's when the tool starts becoming an expert system and starts understanding that, you know, you can say, well, for this control system, you said it should do this and this, but I don't think control systems actually can do that. I think this is an error. It doesn't make any sense to me, right? So explain it more. 
then you have a highly then you have a highly formal language which you can run through a compiler or uh, if you don't want to run it through a compiler to a parser yes yes absolutely yeah. Yeah. once you do that you have a whole other suite of tools um to at your disposal to do an analysis so what we want to do is try to edge people over in that direction right and i think i bet that the original people who built up some of these um theoretical linguistic frameworks had perhaps something like this in mind, but are still too far a jump to do even today. Yeah. So we have to sort of edge people in that in that direction, you know, slowly and gently. Listening to your folks already raised the, the idea in my mind of what about, are we already in the matrix? Is this already the beginning of that requirements are created by automatic systems or vice versa? So is there some kind of perspective that we finally get uh, end up in when we phrase something, uh, we want to have some kind of system, and then the system, when another system defines that new system, and that gets refined also in some kind of automated way by another system. Is this the beginning of something <laughs> like that? This is uh, interesting. <laughs> you are putting uh, that to a whole new level. <laughs> Yeah, uh, I would say it's not imminent. Okay. I will answer that way. <laughs> okay, then I'm, I'm okay with it. But, but, but you do, so, I mean, this actually maybe becomes now we are treading more towards philosophy than engineering. But, you know, we say there's, there's, um, there's systems that are automated and systems that are autonomous. And these are two different things. Um, I think it is, clear that systems are going to become more and more autonomous, meaning that machines will start making decisions and start acting upon the world, um, making decisions on their own. I, I think that that is coming. Um, but I, I don't think, so I don't have, I'm not one of these people who fear AI and think it'll destroy the world and machines will go crazy and, and kill us all. I, I'm not, I don't subscribe to that. I have a more optimistic uh, picture of the of the uh, future of automation. Because I think if you look at uh, how um, computers and machines can help us, they become the most effective when they work with humans. And so, you know, I think the the key thing is not what is automated, but the what can be made interactive. And so when humans and computers can interact together in very meaningful ways, that's when you really have uh, great things can happen. Um, I can give you one example, actually, I was reading just a little short while ago that I think illustrates this point. And that was, so, you know, we all heard how Google uh, um, Alpha beat uh, the Go world champion. Right? And before that, it was Gary Kasparov in chess, how computers beat, you know, right? So yeah. um, if you look at now, um, but if you look at now, what is the, let's, so let's stick with, with chess playing. If you have a competition now, and they have such tournaments like this, where in the tournament you have some grandmasters um, who are, you know, the, the peak of the peak in, in chess playing, and you put them in the competition, you also put the best chess programs in the competition that can actually make moves on their own. Um, you also put them in the competition. And then you put in a third kind of competitor, and the third kind of competitor is someone who is, you know, a good chess player, um, but not a grandmaster, but still a very competent chess player, and with a laptop that has a pretty good chess program on it. Not the best in the world, but you know a decent chess program, and 
the person knows how to use that program very well. And if you have these three classes of competitor, it's always the person with the laptop that always wins easily and by a lot too, right? They easily beat just the fully automated machine and the and the easily build beat just the human. And I think that's the way that we're going, that we're going to use these machines, uh, computers particularly, as tools. They, they help us they help us do things. And I see I it just like... I completely agree. Right. I completely agree and add one further point. Um, this uh, working together and this working maybe in some way which can be described symbiotically um, is due to the fact that machines and humans are good at different things exactly. where computers are good at uh, doing repetitive tasks in a quick way without making errors where humans are really bad at because at some point of time it's boring and then you start to make errors if you make the ten thousands repetition of something they humans are really good at doing things intuitively at deciding where to put the effort and where not to go further down where any backtracking algorithm will do a brute force approach and if it loses it itself somewhere in eternity it will be lost and there will be no result at all. Mm -hmm. And if you combine these two um, pr uh, profiles of um, where you're good at, then you definitely add uh, and at a greater whole. And this is, uh, I completely mm -hmm. agree with that. Yeah. And so that is kind of in, in the back of our mind, that's our strategy as we build the tools. It's really is how can we help the the user of these tools do their job better, right? Remove some of this, you know, boring, repetitive, mundane things that a tool can actually do easier and better. So a tool should do those if it can do it. Yeah. May I, may I, uh, maybe I have the chance to go back to the non-so philosophical thing and ask <laughs> one or two more questions because I'm really interested in that product. First, are you planning on a version which can be um, plugged into Confluence Jira? Because what I am currently seeing is that a lot of companies which do not use Word or Excel um, are using a con a Confluence plus Jira, um, let's say, product for keeping requirements. Are you, are you, are you um, looking into that? It's interesting you say that because we use the Atlassian products internally at QRA for our own development efforts, and we keep track <laughs> of these things actually in Confluence and, and Jira. And so, so it should, uh, should be one of the first choices, right? <laughs> it, it should be yes, but uh, uh, but then we'd have to charge ourselves to actually build it. So that <laughs> yeah, that's okay. <laughs> um, so uh, um, but so we took a survey uh, of. Um, so that, that is definitely so. Confluence is 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 one thing that we're looking at. The, the Rhapsody suite from IBM is another one that we're looking at. Maybe a bit more heavy-handed, um, and there are a few other tools. Um, Visual requirements is, is another one that we're that we're working with to try to integrate. Um, so these are all things we would like to do. Um, what we found in our I would say informal surveys of our user base is that. Um, like you said, Joaquim, that um, Microsoft Office is by far the most used. Um, mm -hmm. And Confluence yeah. and Jira is about, uh, it, it's, it's there, it shows up, right? It's not, uh, it, it shows up, but it's not um, on the top. But ah, okay. uh, that is something that is on our radar. And that's something that we, it is, it, that we are, that we are looking at. 
Um, and, you know, I would say something like an integration with the Atlassian suite is something that is fits our approach of how we want to develop these tools, to join in with mm -hmm. some of these larger tool suites. We don't have to replicate what Confluence and Shira does because they actually do that quite well. And you can provide that as a plugin in the cloud. You don't have to ship it. Yes, and that's for those actually, who uh, for those who do not um, purchase uh, but rent it and have their uh, contents in in the Atlassian cloud, which is yes. possible. Yes, uh, that's right. Yeah, I mean, there's nothing um, there is nothing that requires our um, installation to be local to your machine. Uh, in fact, mm -hmm. there's many advantages to having it on someone mm. else's machine. Which is usually a pain because then you have to run the user help desk and so on if you don't want to do that, I guess. That's right, yeah. yeah. It becomes more expensive and less of a, um, yeah. a, a, less of a, a quality user experience. Um, yeah. On yeah. the other yeah. hand, and so on, and yeah. Mm -hmm. Right, but on the other hand, we've, um, we've talked to some companies and these are mainly like the, the larger companies that, they say, well, a cloud is just not possible with our data, right? Mm -hmm. and, yeah. and they say it doesn't actually matter how secure or insecure. We, we talked to some customers where we looked at their network and we say, actually, what we provide in the cloud, we can show you that it's more secure than what you have in-house, right? It's actually a very bad system. You should change it. But they say, well, it doesn't matter. Our pol the corporate policy is that you know the data does not leave our building, period. Mm -hmm. And so... You have to um, you have to deal with that as well. Mm, of now, course, yeah. it, it's not, that's not that's not a big issue. Whether it's local or a cloud, that's um, that's um, um, less of a uh, barrier for us and how we want to build a tool. And my second question, if I'm allowed to place that here, Georg, is um, what would you recommend as a let's say level of knowledge? before you could, would actually benefit or profit from suggestion your QB scribe would give? Well, um, you know, the, the more experience you have writing requirements and, and technical documentation in general, um, the better the better it is. Um, if you have no experience at all in writing requirements, then, mm. um, you know, you'll get limited usefulness of yeah. the tool because you won't really, it won't help you so much if you don't know they have to have the word must in every requirements, right? Yeah. Or your requirement should be only one requirement, not that the machine mm -hmm. must do this and then this and then this and then this. That's actually three or four different requirements. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. You should have some experience on how the development process uh, proceeds for these for these types of machines that you have, you know, typically from your requirements, you have to verify these requirements. And the verify can come from testing, from analysis. Uh, it can come in various many ways. Yeah. But at yeah. some point, uh, a test engineer will write tests based on your requirements. So you have to keep them yeah. in mind too, that you have to write mm -hmm. it for them, right? Yeah, that's right, yeah. Good point. Mm -hmm. and so, so these are, I would say, just general issues. Um, you know, I had this one, uh, 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 an engineer whom I admire very much would told me once that, you know, the way to learn to write uh, good requirements is to first write very many bad requirements and have people yell at you to tell you what's bad. And then you learn quickly how to write good requirements. Yeah. Right? I think we have, meanwhile, tackled 
the aspects of requirements engineering from a lot of different perspectives already now. Uh, so the final question to you, uh, Jordan and Trevor, is is there anything that comes to your mind that you really would like to put in at this point? We did cover a lot of ground. I would say the one thing to we spoke mainly about requirements. We didn't talk about QV trace very much, which is the design analysis. Um, what that's perhaps appropriate since we are this is about requirements engineering. But one has to think of the entire development process as one large process. And to think that, you know, when you do requirements engineering, a big um, factor of that has to be that you're preparing for the next stage of development. And so, you know, you can build a process around requirements engineering that's beautiful and perfect and ideal, but it's also um, secluded from everything else. And if it's not useful to the engineers that come further down the line, then it's actually not a very good solution. So I think it's important to have um, maybe empathy is the right word for the engineers who are coming um, next um, and write your requirements that's also useful for them. I like to call, I like to call exactly this, um, uh, I, I like to phrase it into uh, requirements. Writing is not like throwing things over a fence and not caring who's on the other side. It's always mm -hmm. about caring who has to digest what you throw over the fence. That's right. Yeah, you're always writing yeah. for other people. Mm -hmm. I totally agree. Combining your two statements, I think it's a pretty nice way to end up this episode. I think it's a great way, great way to wrap it up. The only thing I can do now is to thank you for coming up and sharing your know-how and also your, your statements, man. I, I really do appreciate that. Thank you for coming. Oh, well, thank, thank you, you very much, Peter. Yeah, it was a very enjoyable time. I enjoyed talking to you both. The same for me. This was the interview with Jordan, Trevor and Joachim. It was a pleasure to have you in the show. Again, many thanks to Canada and Berlin. And now it's up to you. Give QV Scribe or QV Trace a try. Visit QA Corp's website and come in touch with these guys. See how you can improve your regular process of managing requirements. I would be really interested in receiving your feedback. And if you have tested the QA tools, what are your experiences? For staying in touch with my guests, do not hesitate and reach out for them. LinkedIn and Twitter details are given in the show notes. All of this information, the resources and links that I have shared with you are in the show notes for this episode at embeddedsuccess.com slash episode 43. And please remember to comment there with your stories about requirements and your personal struggles managing them. This was the massive 43rd episode of the Mastering Embedded Systems podcast. I'm Georg Lore. Thank you for listening.